Hi, this is Tom Compton. You're listening to WHTT Speaks Out. Each week, Chuck Carlson and members of We Hold These Truths look into events that are, for the most part, ignored or overlooked by the mainstream media. And we analyze these events. Ready, set, let the sparks fly. In today's podcast, we are going to visit C.I. Schofield. And we've entitled this C.I. Schofield, Godfather of Christian Zionism. There's a new book out entitled The Praise of Folly, The Enigmatic Life and Theology of C.I. Schofield by David Lutzweiler. Now, the book is for sale on Amazon.com, and if you're interested, you can go there and purchase it. And the interesting thing that precipitated all this, as regular listeners to our program know, our focus is on Christian Zionism, waking up people about the theological errors of Christian Zionism, and that's what this book does. It talks about the life of Cyrus Schofield. There's some new revelation information that's come about from research, and also the errors of Schofield's theology as presented in the Schofield reference Bible that was published in 1908 by the Oxford Press. And what I want to do is start first with a quote from the pastor, Dr. Jeffrey Van Gotham. He's the senior pastor of Schofield Memorial Church, Dallas, Texas. Yes, this is the same church that Cyrus Schofield preached at some over 100 years ago. And this Dr. Van Gotham is casting a lot of questions about the book and in a pretty negative fashion. So Leslie, why don't you read the, these are just some excerpts from his letter or his review, rather, of David Lutzweiler's book. As senior pastor of Schofield Memorial Church, I think I have read about everything on C.I. Schofield, books, articles, unpublished material, including stuff from the files of our own church, papers written by Dallas Seminary students, etc. I think I am in a good position to be objective, having taken in about everything that could be said, good and bad. This volume is not an honest biography, nor a credible effort in establishing the truth. The great D.L. Moody himself invited Moody, sick uh, Van Gotham means Schofield here, to pastor his church in Northfield, Massachusetts. Those who put forth the view that Schofield was a liar, schemer, fraud, etc. in all his years in Christian ministry must also agree that the great Moody was the same or perhaps a dupe of Schofield. Does anyone believe that? Okay, and of course, there's really not much in the way of facts in his article, and he goes, his review here, it's not that long, but one of the tactics, as Leslie read, about association with D.L. Moody, and David Lutzweiler, in his letter, we won't actually cover that part, does get into Moody, and Moody, as many will recall, was an evangelist. And that was his specialty. He wasn't a biblical scholar, per se. He, he was an evangelist. And one of the examples that Mr. Lutzweiler gives is of a 
Scottish theologian that D.L. Moody was requesting to come on board with them for help. turns out he was in the, the modernist theories of theology that were really not compatible with what, and that was pointed out. So the, the point is that people can be duped. Well, uh, Tom Moody and Schofield and Blackstone and others were really birds of a feather. They were the early dispensationalists, and uh, so sometimes these writers like to deify people like Moody, but he and Schofield were, they had the same thoughts about the Bible. They were basically futurists, and they were taking and twisting the Bible uh, essentially toward the second coming and Jesus' third return or whatever, and pushing everything out into the future. And Moody, uh, he and Schofield saw eye to eye. So it wasn't that uh, Schofield duped Moody or Moody duped Schofield. They were just allies at the time. Yes, a good point. And it is interesting that there would be an attack from the pastor of the Schofield Memorial Church. Obviously, he's very defensive about this and wants to have people avoid the book rather than making up their own mind. Right. He quickly denounced the book, said it was not scholarly and it was not honest and so on and so forth. And this, this, this kind of shows his dishonesty, I'm afraid, a little, a little bit, because what do theologians have to fear from people's opinion and, and reading research about uh, these old figures? They shouldn't be afraid of that. Well, yeah, so that's exactly right. And in this long response to the review, it's 25 pages long. We're not going to cover every aspect of it, but David Lutzweiler goes into a lot of these points here to explain his positions and why he, and we'll see a little bit later, this pastor has accused him of showing some kind of uh, animosity towards Schofield because of the success of the Schofield Bible, which is a very right. serious... Lutzweiler basically picked up where uh, Joseph Canfield left off 25 years ago when he wrote his first really thoughtful analysis of the life of Cyrus I. Schofield, one that was unvarnished by all of the goody-goody stuff that everyone said about him. Everybody thought he was so wonderful and left nothing but... Uh, what beauty and charm in his in his history, and they essentially just varnished over his faults and sins. And uh, what's happened here is Lutzweiler's come along and advanced Canfield's work a little bit by finding a few more things out about Schofield. And this is really necessary because Schofield is he's the hero of the dispensational movement, and he managed to be that way to make himself a hero by covering up an awful lot of his own past and uh, being able to keep secrets. And he kept big, dark secrets, like who it was that was really promoting him along the way. Lutzweiler, of course, has exposed some of this. Uh, they've uncovered some of these links that these, uh, these guys that Schofield had with the uh, Zionist movement of its day. And uh, thus, Schofield, of course, became the godfather of creating the study Bible for Christian Zionism that we know as the Schofield Reference Bible. Okay, good. Well, let's uh, give for an example here. Here's uh, in David Lutzweiler's reply to this review. I'm going to have Leslie read a few things here 
in response about Schofield's conversion because this concept of black to white, in other words, most Christians say that before they accepted Christ, they were in sin and so forth, and uh, when they get out of, they, by accepting Christ, they become washed in the blood of, of the Lamb, Jesus, and that we still, still do have a sin nature, but we're looking to become more like Jesus. So he's bringing up the point here that, well, Leslie, why don't you read the items here? Sure. The particular point in your review to which I refer is, at its end, where you state of me, he apparently does not understand the grace of God and how it can transform a man. Since you may not have a copy of my book handy as you read this, I will quote directly the opening lines of that section entitled, Whitewashing the Pre-Conversion Years. And I ask you to consider, as you read the following lines, whether or not they justify the statement that you made in your review. In view of the evangelical gospel of redemption, forgiveness, and the new life that Christ gives when one is born again, why have so many felt any necessity at all to whitewash Schofield's pre-conversion life? Church history is full of saints who, before their conversion, lived lives far worse than Schofield's. Paul's testimony is a classic example of this. He was bent on destroying the Christian church by persecuting it to death. The worse the life, the greater the testimony of deliverance. Therefore, on that principle, Schofield's testimony could have been one of the best of his time. Quote, Former swindler and crooked politician finds Christ, unquote, could have been a headline in the Sunday School Times. That would have been far more powerful than mere deliverance from alcoholism, which was far more common and the only thing that Schofield ever claimed. In fact, in all such cases, the typical fundamentalist trend is not to minimize but maximize the past life of sin. If there is any stretching of the truth, it usually is to make things appear to be worse rather than better in order to make the new life in Christ shine all the brighter. In Schofield's case, however, we find that the, quote, ex-forger and swindler, unquote, card is not the one that he himself played, nor any of those who knew him. Why? Go ahead. Let me make a comment there. We've seen this ourselves in our associations with Christian Zionists at all different levels. The case that was most vivid to me was Pastor Maury Davis of Cornerstone Church, who was quite pleased with telling his congregation that he was a murderer and that he had uh, been saved while he was in jail. And uh, even he'd even gotten a short prison term out of it, probably because of God's deliverance out of the jail cell, sort of like Paul had been expelled out through the wall or something. And uh, Murray Davis found out that uh, when he talked about being a murderer, it actually, uh, it actually built confidence in him. He got away with it uh, quite nicely. Of course, he had a way of leaving out some of the gory details. Those would have been a little hard for people to wash out of their memory uh, since he was a, uh, virtually a chainsaw murderer uh, with a bowie knife instead. But uh, the idea that was expressed here by Lutzwaller that Evangelicals have a way of exaggerating their sins in order to 
make a better proof that uh, God has forgiven them and physically changed them. It's quite often true. Scopale, on the other hand, was busy carrying on his, uh, he never stopped being a con man, uh, and he never stopped uh, being a, a sort of a, a religious swindler as he went along. And obviously he didn't want to confess those arts and sins because he was still busily using them. And we'll see that in a couple of the quotes coming up here from uh, David Lutzweiler. The next one I'm going to have Leslie read is about the senior pastor of the Schofield Church. The senior pastor of the church that not only bears commemoratively Schofield's name, but also still teaches his dispensational, or more accurately, dual covenant theology, is about 99.9999% certain to be biased heavily in favor of Schofield, viewing all negative facts about him through a lens that is at least rose-tinted and likely to have a few deforming wrinkles as well. Not that such a condition cannot be overcome, as my own case proves. My beloved father was a dispensationalist, and I, at age 17, 1953, started Moody Bible Institute, which formed me into a DPZ, dispensational premillennial Zionist believer, until I was about 35. I was thus an investigator who had what lawyers view as the highest level of credibility, known as, quote, admission against interest, unquote. It was only the force of indisputable facts coming to my attention that overcame the built-in bias of my early training. I had no axe to grind but the truth. Okay, the, the next point is some of the new research that has come out, some very significant uh, research about the life of Cyrus I. Schofield. Leslie, the next point there. Although you undoubtedly have read much, it may be that you have not yet read the latest and one of the most important works on Schofield, the MA thesis by Gene Rushing at East Tennessee State University, December 2011. I know that she emailed you a copy. However, for your convenience here, I enclose a few pages from it, including three of the most important a copy of a letter that she uncovered, which Schofield had written from St. Louis, Missouri, on November 18, 1862. It provides one more of those, quote, indisputable facts, unquote, that I refer to in section A above. That letter confirms what we knew already of one of the many unconscionable eyes that Schofield told Trumbull in the interview that he gave in 1918 as the basis for Trumbull's hagiographical so-called, quote, biography, unquote, the life story of C.I. Schofield. We knew that Schofield had lied shamelessly about his Civil War record, even though the 16 months that he did serve May 20th, 1861 through September 26, 1862, were honorable enough. As you probably know, he fought in five major battles, the last of them being the worst in American history, Antietam, 
We knew also that after his discharge in 1862, he had made his way to St. Louis, where he had three sisters, including Emmeline, who had married into the wealthy von Papen family, and that is where he was when the Civil War ended in 1865. Nevertheless, he claimed later, falsely, that he had fought through the entire Civil War and told Trumbull that he was 12 miles from Appomattox when Lee surrendered to Grant. Okay, now that's another example. And then here's uh, another one about his profession of Christianity here. On pages 125 through 136 in my book, I discuss nine lies that Schofield told in his entry for who's who, six of commission and three deceptions by way of omission, and I note elsewhere the other lies that he told Trumbull in the interview for his biography. One egregious lie was his Civil War service has been exposed already above, and another is his claim that his Cross of Honor award was, quote, for bravery at Antietam, unquote when it was actually a general honorary award given in 1900, 35 years after the close of the war, by the Daughters of the Confederacy as an expression of gratitude to every ex-Confederate soldier who had served honorably for the South. It was not a special battlefield award, quote, for bravery, unquote, given to only a few who earned it, the Confederacy did not strike such medals at the time. Okay, now here's a comment because one of the things that was supposedly his conversion was alcoholism. Leslie, why don't you read this little section here? Yes. His claim of, quote, alcoholism, unquote, was, from all my analysis, greatly exaggerated. No one else ever had mentioned it, not Leontine, in the divorce, nor elsewhere, and not the hostile journalist who covered his cases. If it was as bad as he implied, they surely would have mentioned it in those days because they had a clear bias against Schofield and thus would have grabbed onto anything as conspicuous as that in order to help document their case. Thus we have it only on his word, and we see that his word on anything about himself is totally unreliable. Quote, drunkenness, unquote, by comparison with his real sins of swindling and womanizing unfaithfulness to Leontine, which he never disclosed to Trumbull nor to anyone else, was a more common and acceptable claim for his self-image. It calls into question, then, the depth of his conversion experience. Genuine repentance is completely honest. Okay, now let's shift into some of the theological errors, and I want Chuck to chime in. Well, first, this is an Old Testament reference to Obadiah. In 1 Kings 18, 3-4, God's own infallible evaluation of Obadiah's character was that he, quote, feared the Lord greatly, unquote. Then, to give a specific example of Obadiah's devotion, God mentions that, quote, it was so when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord that Obadiah took an hundred prophets and hid them by fifty in a cave and fed them with bread and water, unquote. 
In his message, Dr. Hubbard pointed out that this was a great personal risk, revealing clearly and inspirationally Obadiah's courage and faith at this critical time of Israel's history. First, the descriptive section heading in italics that Schofield put before verse 3, where the narrative covering Obadiah and his actions begins. Schofield's note reads, In such a time as the reign of Ahab and Jezebel, a believer's true place was by Elijah's side. Obadiah is a warning type of the men of God who adhere to the world while still seeking to serve God. The secret of the Lord and the power of the Lord were with Elijah, the separated servant. Schofield, being a member of the Lotus Club, when he wrote this and for the rest of his life, scarcely was in a position to be making such a comment about anyone. If ever there was a man who was trying to, quote, adhere to the world while still seeking to serve God, unquote, or at least give the appearance of, quote, seeking to serve God, unquote, it was the writer of this very comment. For at the very moment that he was writing it, he was rather suspiciously in the company of the rich, the famous, and the powerful at the Lotus Club. And the only reason for it that seems plausible is that it was to obtain whatever assistance they might give him for the advancement of the dispensationalist Zionist agenda. And, of course, the member, the connection at the Lotus Club was a man named Samuel Untermeyer, an American Jewish Zionist. Right, a very important one. And uh, this leads us to the idea that the, the Zionist had a great influence over Schofield's work and his interpretation of the Bible, uh, known as the Schofield Reference Bible, which is the reason <laughs> all these people are interested in and the reason all these books are being written about him. David Lutzweiler refers to the theology, you might say, that Schofield put forward as dual covenant theology. I think we heard that term used a little while ago. And dual covenant theology essentially means that God had a separate covenant for the Israelites than he had for the Christian followers of Jesus later on. And this is the idea that uh, is forwarded in Christian Zionism and brings us to the idea that the Israelis today are God's chosen people still carrying out God's will in Jesus' homeland. And, of course, then that Jesus is going to return at a future time to the same Israel and uh, commanded himself. Happened to hear a religious broadcaster talking about that in connection with the disaster in Boston at the marathon, uh, where the, these people, unfortunate people, were killed by a bomber. And he ended up uh, lamenting, "Oh, woe is us! But uh, Jesus is coming soon to pluck us out of here, and then we will be with him, and we won't have to look back on this evil and ugly world." So this is the work of Cyrus Schofield and his Bible that uh, is referred to dual covenant theology by David Lutzweiler. We just call it Christian Zionism, usually. Thank you, Chuck. And the next point is some of the damage that has been done over the years by Christian Zionism. And one of the classic examples is in this next quote, Leslie. 
I marked with a paper clip the section that expound on three classes of damage that dual covenant theology has inflicted and is still inflicting. Just one brief infuriating example. The $2 billion, yes, that is a B, that evangelicals have diverted from desperately needy Christian foreign mission to the satanic, deceptive, counterfeit modern state of quote-unquote Israel since its founding in 1948. Heretic John Hagee alone has raised many millions of dollars for it and says that, quote, only God knows, unquote, if any unbelieving Jews will be saved apart from Christ. Wrong, John. We know, too, because God has told us. Okay, and then this last quote here about the questioning of David Lutzweiler's reasons for writing this book. Of course, the pastor of the Schofield Memorial Church has cast negative light on him. Leslie? You say in your review that you have the impression that my book was written because I do, quote, not agree with Schofield's theology, unquote, and am, quote, resentful of the success and popularity of the Schofield Reference Bible, unquote. Those are two more mistakes that, again, fulfill Reicher's rule of self-disclosure. The first implies that disagreement with Schofield's theology, while it is widespread among, e.g., the Reformed wing of evangelicalism, is really only a matter of opinion, and that no one can be absolutely certain of which system is the only correct one. That is the same cop-out of agnosticism that liberals use against conservatives in economics and politics. Quote, All truth is relative. There is no absolute truth of which everyone can be certain, unquote. It is one of the all-time favorite subterfuges practiced by those who, quote, love and make a lie, unquote, referenced previously. The second is a gratuitous libel on my motives and character. It reveals that it springs only from your own powerful bias in favor of Schofield and the SRB, and how resentful you are yourself against any attacks on them. As Henry Bergson once observed, quote, most of our suspicions of others are aroused by our knowledge of ourselves, unquote. A person who feels resentment, therefore, will be quick to imagine it in others. No, the right word for what I and many others, including A.W. Tozer, feel about SRB is not, quote, resentful, unquote, but, quote, grief, unquote, quote, dismay, unquote, and even, quote, alarm, unquote, because of all the damage that I document in, quote, an appraisal of folly, unquote. Dr. Tozer said that, quote, our first obligation is not to spread the gospel, but to be sure that we have the only true gospel that is worthy to be spread, unquote. Dual covenant theology has enough of the true gospel to save souls, but it has a lethal contaminant that has weakened the church unacceptably. This is now about 175 years after the first drops of it were injected into Christ's visible body, the church. It is time to purge it. Quote, it is time for judgment to begin in the house of God, unquote, and... 
quote, the times past of this ignorance God winked at, but now commands dual covenant people everywhere to repent, unquote. Okay, thank you. Now, Chuck, why don't you give us an example in the New Testament of the perversion that has been promoted by this dual covenant? Okay, we'll, we'll just take a few out of the book of Luke. These are examples of, I think, dual covenant theology that uh, is sometimes called futurism. It essentially places the events of Christ's life uh, as, as future events that are, have yet to take place and are going to take place in the future. And this, of course, creates this marvelous confusion that uh, results in people really not being of God's kingdom today. They're waiting for God's kingdom tomorrow. An example of this is found in the Cyrus Schofield's footnotes on page 1096 of the book of Luke. And uh, there's about three inches at the bottom of the page of very fine print footnotes that uh, are, are devoted mostly to Jesus' statement of what we know as the Lord's Prayer where Jesus was talking to his disciples about how to pray. And part of it, in part of it, he said, you all know it. And he said to them, when you pray, pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, period. Thy will be done as on earth as it is in heaven. Now, the way Schofield interprets that is he wants to make very sure that we think that God's kingdom had not come at the time Jesus was talking about it. In other words, the traditional Christianity believed Jesus brought the kingdom with him. And when he left, he left it behind. And he left the Holy Spirit as, as his spokesman to his voice to lead his followers, this being his kingdom on earth. But uh, here's how Cyrus I. Schofield interprets these little words. He said, in the uh, sense of petition, a prayer must first put the kingdom and its coming down from heaven. So my kingdom come is, of course, here an event that is yet to come. He's made that into a future event. A true prayer accepts in advance the will of God, whether known or unknown, whether or not to grant or to withhold. Prayer should always envision the divine will and the kingdom as an objective, which will certainly be realized on earth. So here it's all represented as future tense. So if you listen to Schofield Reference Bible, you would believe that God's kingdom or Jesus' kingdom has not come to earth, that we're still waiting for that. And thus the dual covenant, the original covenant of the Old Testament, and then followed by this new covenant that is yet to be fulfilled. Thus the Lord's Prayer has to have about, uh, it consists of maybe 75 or 50 words, and it's got maybe 300 words of footnotes attached to it. This is the legacy of Cyrus I. Schofield is the distortion of not just the Old Testament, book of Obadiah or whatever, but also the New Testament. Now, this New Covenant theology is expressed further as we go on into Luke 17, where there's an example of it, 17.2. And we're just using Luke here, and we could use many sections of the Bible. Here Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. And he was demanding of the Pharisees, and the Pharisees demanded of him, they wanted to know when the kingdom of God should come. And Jesus' answer to them was very plain. Here's what he said. The kingdom of God cometh not with observation, meaning it's not something you're going to see in the sky. Neither shall you say, lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So he's basically telling 
the Pharisees in his presence that they were standing in the midst of the kingdom of God, that he was the center of the kingdom of God on earth. But the, the footnotes have to change this, of course, and make this something in the future. So um, Cyrus Schofield says at the bottom of this, in a little discourse, meantime, the kingdom was actually in the midst of the Pharisees and the person of the king and his disciples. Ultimately, the kingdom of heaven will come with an outward show. So Schofield sort of admits that Jesus brought the kingdom with him. In his interpretation, he kind of took it back with him to heaven and we're all having to wait for that kingdom, which he said will ultimately come down from heaven with an outward show. So Jesus says, you won't see it with an outward show. It doesn't come down to heaven as, as something that you envision. Don't look here for it. Don't look there for it. And Schofield turns right around and contradicts Jesus and said, indeed, it will come with an outward show at some future time. This is the idea of futurism. Is that sort of clear uh, as I've uh, expressed that? Very clear, Chuck. That is excellent. Those are two good points. And if anyone is interested to, uh, after hearing this, we will have the link to David Lutzweiler's full letter if they're interested in the response. And we have many resources on our website, whtt.org and charlesecarlson.com that uh, you can go to. Also, if you've not seen our video, Christian Zionist, The Tragedy and Turning, Part 1, that is available now on our Vimeo site also. Thanks, everybody, for your input on this very important program. And the kingdom is here and now. Amen. Wow. And the followers of Christ are that kingdom, because we know it's a spiritual kingdom. Right. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tell a friend about our podcast. And please visit our website, whtt.org. You will find a wealth of information and resources like the latest Pharisee Watch and unheralded news articles. Also, you can order our new video, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Even though this video is copyrighted, we don't mind if you copy it as long as you copy all of it. Then you can educate your friends and acquaintances about the dangers of Christian Zionism. Start small, think big, and press on toward the straight gate.